distinguishes what, what our faith is all about. So I would encourage you uh, to be uh, thinking on that uh, in the coming days. I'm going to invite our servers to come clear this table. You can pass your cups to the center aisle. Our ushers will uh, collect those. And as they're doing that, I'm going to remind you that this is promotion day at First Baptist. Now, what that means is stuff like our seniors get recognized and we, uh, you know, give them a handshake and pray for them and stuff like that. But there's some other more subtle things that happen at First Baptist on promotion day that you're not always aware of. And one of the things that happens is everybody in their, in their class or their Sunday school class or whatever moves up a grade. So if you were a first grader, you moved to second grade. It's very exciting. Very exciting. Except if you're a fourth grader moving to fifth grade. Because what, hap- what that means, if you're a fourth grader moving to fifth grade, is that uh, you used to be able to go to children's church. You didn't have to come and hang out with the big people, and you didn't have to listen to that guy standing up front doing whatever he does. And now you've got to come sit with all the, the, the big people. So to the Carson Robers, the Hannah Pollocks, that are out there today, I just want you to know I'm turning it up to 11 today, all right? I'm going to turn it up to 11. I don't know what's happened previously. I don't know what we would say where that is, but I'm going to turn it up to 11. So at least this next 25 or 30 minutes, it it may be terrible, but it won't be horrible. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I know kind of what you're expecting. We're going to make it as good as we can. And, And then I apologize to you because we have not created the reputation here during this 10-15 hour that you are dying to be here with us. I think there should be this sense, I cannot wait until I get to hang out with those people. All right, so we're working on that. We're working on that. And, and so uh, rest assured, I'm, I'm, I'm turning it up to 11. Now, unfortunately, uh, you... Um, you're coming, you're coming into week number one of, a, of this series that we're going to do in June uh, out, out of Matthew 6. And so I say unfortunately because you may look at that and you say, oh, right off the bat, uh, we're going to talk about giving. And we are. We're going to talk about giving today. And so uh, I don't know what kind of allowance you get, Carson, but, um, but you need to listen carefully to what Pastor Jeff's saying today. All right, here we go. So Matthew 6, so during the month of June, we're going, to, we're going to work our way through Matthew 6. Matthew 6 falls right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a, is a, a collection of Jesus' teaching. Goes, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, whether or not it was a, all delivered in one big address or it was a collection of uh, Jesus' sermons that he did at different at points within his ministry. There's d- different takes on that. But what we've got here, in Matthew at least, in those three chapters, is the, is the biggest single section of Jesus' teaching that we have anywhere else in the New Testament. And so we're looking at, at Matthew 6, right in the middle there, and this is likely, as we look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is likely the key things that Jesus was teaching to his followers, those that were closest to Jesus, these are the things that they were hearing. And it would be 
short-sighted or naive to think that he only preached a sermon like this once or he only taught these things once. I'm going to guess that these things were front and center to what Jesus taught as he moved through his ministry the three years that he was uh, in his public ministry. And so over the next few weeks, uh, four weeks, we are going to look at uh, the idea of uh, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And we're going to talk about seeking after God. Those four big ideas are what Matthew 6 uh, lands on. Giving, praying, fasting, and seeking. So do me a favor. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6 and find verse 1. And we're going to land there uh, right off the bat here. In verse 1 of Matthew 6, we read this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So this verse, this, this very first verse in Matthew 6, I believe is an, an introduction to the whole rest of, of Matthew 6. Because when Jesus is talking about these acts of righteousness or practicing your righteousness before men, there were three activities in the Jewish faith or in the Jewish culture that were front and center in their religious life. And it was giving to the poor, giving alms to the poor, or giving uh, offering in the temple. There was prayer, and there was fasting. Those three things were very central to the Jewish faith. And so Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is um, talking so much about the, the how of how we practice these things as much as he's talking about the why. What's the motivation? Are we doing these acts of righteousness, whatever they may be, are we doing them to be seen by others so that others would notice our deep spirituality or our deep commitment to God? Or are we doing them because out, of, out of a love for God or out of a wanting to God to be honored in my life? The motivation, I believe, is what Jesus is, is speaking to uh, we might give so that would, people would notice our great generosity, or we might fast and let people know about it so they could see how deeply committed we are to wanting uh, uh, God to speak in our life. And that would be the wrong motivation. And as we might expect, this idea, this theme is, is pretty central in the New Testament. This idea that really it's more important what happens on the inside that it has to start at the very inside. In fact, Jesus is addressing in Matthew 6 this idea of being a hypocrite. And a hypocrite is, is a person that basically says they are or they do one thing, uh, but when it comes right down to the actual activities, they may believe one way, but they live a different way. And Jesus is highlighting the problem of the hypocrite. And then we have to ask, before we jump into the rest of uh, our passage for this morning, this idea of rewards. Jesus says in verse 1, Otherwise, if, if you do these acts of righteousness to be noticed by men, you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. So what is the place? What's the, what's, what is this idea of rewards that Jesus is talking about here? And let me, let me say this, through this whole month, 
You may take issue with some of the things you hear, or you may wish I, I wasn't saying maybe some of the things I'm saying. Uh, the good thing about where I'm coming from this month is you, you don't have an issue with me. You have an issue with Jesus. Because this, these are Jesus' words. Okay, this is Jesus talking. I'm doing my best to communicate uh, my understanding of, of what Jesus is trying to say. But your issue isn't with me. It's with Jesus. You can take it up with him. So, rewards. What are we to make of that? Because let's be honest, if we look at, in the Bible, rewards, the, 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 it's a regular part of what we see in the Bible. Let me just give you a few examples. In Colossians, Paul says in Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the, inher- the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In the book of Hebrews, the author says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must first believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In the book of Matthew, later on, Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then Paul, in the book of 2 Timothy, says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all that loved his appearing. So this concept of rewards is not unfamiliar to those that were writing and, and experiencing this first century brand of Christianity. So what are we to make of this? I mean, I'm sure most of us would say, hopefully, hey, that I don't do what I do, I don't live the way I live, I don't practice my faith the way I do because of the rewards that I'm anticipating. Most of us would say, I do what I do. I live the way I live. I, I practice my faith the way I do because of my, it's out of a response of love for God, for what God has done for me. And that's where I come down. I mean, that, I, I, my, my life, what I've chosen to do is a response of love for God's great love in my life. That's all well and good, but the Bible still talks about the fact that there are rewards coming my way. And so I have to ask, well, what's the nature of these rewards? Well, that's a good question. And I asked Peter Pollock this morning if he would go on to heaven for us this morning and then come back and tell us so that I would have a straight answer. He was unwilling. (laughs) He was unwilling to go. He just wasn't sure he could make it back. So to, to say, hey, I absolutely know what this is all about, uh, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think I can say definitively, but, but listen to 1 Corinthians. First of all, I think we need to recognize that these rewards are directly connected to what happens. These rewards that I'm anticipating in the future are directly connected to what happens now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. Each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. 
If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So apparently, once I lay a foundation of Jesus Christ in my life, I'm building on it with some building materials. Gold, silver, precious stone, or less valuable things like wood, hay, and straw. And at one point, the the quality of my work is going to be revealed and my reward will be given. But it seems clear that this reward is directly related to what, how I'm building now, what's happening now, decisions I'm making now. Ken Boa, in an article uh, related to rewards in heaven, uh, says that one of the, 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 one of the natures of, of the rewards we can expect is that it, it's going to be greater responsibility in heaven, that somehow or another, in fact, Jesus alludes to it in, in a couple of his um, parables, that, that my reward will be maybe more responsibility, greater responsibility in heaven. It's a possibility. And then finally, it could be related to just my ability to experience and know God's presence as I'm there in heaven. A.W. Tozer says this, every Christian, listen carefully now, every Christian will become at last what what his desires have made him. We are the sum total of our hungers. The great saints have all had thirsty hearts. Their cry has been, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and and appear before God? They longed after God. Being in God's presence consumed them. It propelled them onward and upward. There's no greater thing, no greater reward we could receive than to be in God's presence. And as we think about that as a reward for decisions made in this life, it should remind us how significant these decisions are. C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, said that all the scriptural image, the idea of harps and crowns and sitting on fluffy clouds, people think, hey, I don't want to go to heaven if, if I'm just going to sit on a cloud and play a harp for eternity. C.S. Lewis says, uh, of course, those are merely symbolic attempts to express the unexpressible. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. So we have a picture of these rewards in the future, and and I'm going to say I don't have a full understanding, nor do I believe we are, are we intended to have a full understanding of what they consist of other than that they appear to be very real. And so then real quick, I would just say, well, what about in this life? What about rewards in this life? And I'm reminded that that Jesus said that he had come to give us life and give us abundant life, that there is a reality that as I come to faith, as I come to understand a relationship with God through Jesus, that I can experience life as it was intended to be, not just as something that's going to happen in the future, but something I can experience now, that I can understand the abundant life now that I can understand God's peace, God's love, 
God's joy in my life today. And I, sec- I think the second part of our rewards uh, here and now on earth is that we have the privilege of being part of God's eternal mission, that he has granted us to do his work, to be worthy to do his work in this world and to take the gospel, the good news that we just spoke of, and take it to a world that needs to hear it. So that's verse 1. That be, we need to beware of practicing our righteousness before men, to be seen by men. There'll be no reward from our Father in heaven. So let's look uh, more specifically at this first idea of giving. So in Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, Jesus goes on to say this. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, first idea out of these two or three verses is the idea of when, not if. Jesus does not say, if you give. He says, when you give. The expectation that Jesus has is that we will give. That his hearers, when he was teaching, that they were givers. When you give, when, not if. It was a central part of the Jewish faith, as I've already mentioned. And Jesus taught often on this idea of giving. In fact, Jesus told 38 parables throughout the New Testament. 16 of those parables have to do with money. It was a, it was a central part of what Jesus taught. And generally, there's, there's two big ideas there, that, that God d- desires to meet our needs supernaturally, that, that He wants to meet our needs and, and secondly, there's this idea in his teaching that there's a danger in allowing our resources to control our life. So here's what I find beautiful about the Bible and about just humanity in general. It would be very easy to say, well, hey, that was 2,000 years ago, and, and it's different now. Is it really? If Jesus is teaching these things in the year, whatever, 35 A.D., and, and, and it can be that clear about the, the problem of resources and money in people's lives. I can't imagine that things have, the specifics have changed for sure. But people haven't changed that much. We're allowing the same kinds of things to control our life. And we have the greatest example of giving right in front of us as we look at the life of Jesus. Paul said about Jesus in 2 Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. We've seen that, we're aware of that, the greatest giver ever to walk the earth was Jesus. When we give, not if. Second big idea in in these verses Jesus tells us to give secretly 
but not obviously. Verses 3 and 4. Honestly, I believe the word quietly is better than secretly. So you may want to jot that in there. He makes it clear that our giving is not necessarily to be seen, more importantly, not to be honored by others. But is it safe to say that we should never make our giving public, that no one should ever know that I give or what I give? And I think we have to be careful about that because just in the chapter right before this, in chapter 5, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men so that people would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It was clear that it's not necessarily all about making sure everything is private. It's all about your motivation and how you approach this idea of giving. And he makes it clear that it's not, we're not to do it to be honored by others. But he does use the phrase, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So we have to ask, well, what does that mean? And clearly, at least in my mind, that's not something that we can take literally. It's really not possible for your right hand to not know what your left hand is doing, is it? My brain's going to know if I've got something. I mean, the hands don't have brains. They can't think. They can't reason. So it's really not possible that your right hand would not know what your left hand has in it. So it's not to be taken literally. It's a, a, a metaphorical illustration that Jesus is using. So what's, it, what's he trying to illustrate here? I think the, the context tells us, in light of what he said about the hypocritical people that he's speaking against, that we need to be careful that we're not doing, we're not practicing our acts of righteousness to be seen so that everybody knows what I'm doing. So that's why I would say the word quietly is better than secretly. Now, probably more accurately, the, what was happening here with the, the rabbis other than Jesus is they're teaching on this very same thing when they talked about giving secretly the idea in most of their teaching was not so much that, I, that I'm giving an amount secretly, but who is receiving the gift. That I shouldn't be concerned so much about who's receiving the gift I give, that I give it and allow it to be given to those that are in need. And so they had different ways of making sure that that happened in the temple and making sure that those that were in need were getting the, the resources that they needed. So perhaps we need to think about being generous givers and, and be less concerned by, by exactly who gets it. God calls us to be generous with our gifts, but maybe not to control every aspect of where those gifts go. Here's one other issue regarding giving secretly or, or confidentially that is potentially problematic. And I realize this is kind of maybe North American, Western, you know, we keep our financial dealings pretty tight to ourselves. We're, we're not always real open. Some of you might be, but most of us, we keep it pretty, pretty tight. 
And that's probably okay. The potential temptation, though, is the fact that we handle this so confidentially that I could give the illusion that I am being generous when I may not be. This is a temptation. And so as a church, we take seriously the idea of wanting to encourage one another to good deeds. Hebrews 10 reminds us that we should be encouraging each other to do uh, good things. But when it comes to giving, we might, we might talk about it, but to what degree are we really, with some kind of level of accountability, holding people close to us to generosity in our giving? It's a central part of our faith, for sure. So verses 2, uh, verses two, 3, and 4, Jesus is speaking about this idea of giving. Later on in chapter 6, he comes back to it. So I'm going to ask you to turn uh, or look down at verses 19 to 24. So we've talked about when, not if. We've talked about giving quietly, not obviously. In verses 19 to 24, the third big idea that Jesus gives us in, in Matthew 6 is that we need to store in heaven, not on earth. So Matthew 6, 19, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in, your dark, is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So again, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. I think he gets right to the point. And he reminds us that we need to store in heaven and not on earth. So I want to point out four quick things in this second section on giving that Jesus highlights. First, do not treasure earthly possessions, verse 19. Why? Well, quite frankly, because they are temporary. Moth and rust destroy Thieves break in and steal. You can't take it with you when you go. You fill in the blank. Why treasure something that is simply an earthly possession? Treasuring our earthly possessions leads to greed. Jesus said this, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus is saying, listen, you can get as much as you want. Your life, the meaning of your life, is not going to be fulfilled by the possessions that you have. Do not treasure earthly possessions. They, these things are deceptive. They distract from what is truly valuable. Jesus' parable of the sower says that things are going to creep into our life, things that are going to distract us from the true vision, the true goal, the true meaning of life, and many times the things of our life 
can pull us away, can distract us. In fact, it creates within us a false sense of security that we, we get this sense that if we run into issues or we get into problems, that we've got the resources to bail us out rather than relying on God. Second big idea here that Jesus uh, highlights is um, money and other resources can be exchanged for heavenly treasure. Verse 20. So we have to ask ourselves, what, is, what are things that are valuable now that will hold value in eternity? What are those things? Thankfully, God has been so clear to us. How we treat one another. Micah 6.8 talks about the idea that it says, I have shown you what is good and what the Lord requires. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. These are the things that have value. How we treat one another. Jesus said this to a man one time. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. That's in Luke 18. So there are things that we can do now, as we live now, that hold value, not just today as we walk the earth, but in the life to come. Third thing that Jesus taught here is our heart follows our money. I don't think we need much explanation on this. I think if we look around a little bit, and if you have a few conversations, and if you look at your own budget, you would see that our heart follows our money. Jesus said this. Okay, I didn't say this. Jesus said this. William Barclay, in his commentary on Matthew, said, If everything which a man counts valuable is on this earth, then he will leave this earth reluctantly and grudgingly. If a man's thoughts have been ever on the world beyond, he will leave this world with gladness because he goes at last to be with God. This world is not the end of life. It is a stage on the way. It's a stage on the way. So we have to have a bigger picture, a more eternal picture of what God wants for us as we walk this earth today. Now right in the middle, right in the middle of this pretty clear statement on finances, Jesus drops this uh, idea of the good eye or the eye is the lamp of the body. And darkness and light and good eye, bad eye. Um, and we have to ask, what's he talking about here? I mean, when I'm reading it along, and I read it a few times this week, and every time I got to that, I'm like, what, did Matthew just stick that in there? I don't, I don't even understand what that has to do with what he's saying. And so there's a couple things I want us to consider uh, related to this idea of the eye being the lamp of the body. First of all, we have to remember that Jesus did not speak English. Am I right? Jesus didn't speak English. Hope that doesn't come as a complete shock to you. He didn't speak English. Matthew didn't either. Matthew didn't write in English. And so we have to recognize that there were things being said, and, and we have a few of them ourselves, some idioms that we talk about. Like if you've ever known somebody that's trying to learn English, and you say something like, man, you hit the nail right on the head. 
they would look at you like, what are you talking about? I, I don't, I mean, what do, you, what do you mean? We all know exactly what that means when somebody says that. Or if somebody said, uh, man, I can get those, those are a dime a dozen. Again, nobody's going to know what those things mean. Or I'm pulling your leg. <laughs> you know, there are these things that, that, that creep into our language. It was the same when Jesus walked the earth. And so here's what I want us to understand. The, the word that, that we're using here for good is the Greek word haplos. And that word can have the meaning single or undivided. So you could say, instead of good eye, you could say the undivided eye or the single-minded eye. Now, to me, it starts to make a little bit more sense. The word for bad is the word poneros. And it can mean evil, and there was a, a phrase in uh, the Jewish culture for the evil eye. And the evil eye, or a person with an evil eye, was a greedy or stingy person. So now when you read this and you see that the, Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body and the, the good eye fills the body with light, it begins to make sense to me because now I begin to see that what Jesus is saying or what he could be saying here is the person with a single-mindedness, a single focus that my, that my body is going to be filled with light. Or if I am a stingy or greedy person, I'm going to have trouble finding my way. So Jesus has basically given an illustration. He's given a, a metaphorical illustration of what he's trying to communicate to his people. And he finishes with this last statement where he says, you cannot serve God and money. And fortunately, he brings it home in a way that leaves no doubt for us. We can't serve two masters. That's a clear, hard true line in our life we have to look at our life and we have to ask ourselves some hard questions so let me tell you this story there was a pastor once uh, who told the story of a man who came to his church and made a promise a covenant with him they were both young men and when they were young that they they made a promise to one another that they would tithe 10 percent of their income every year so both men, they were young, neither of them had much money, but that didn't stay the same for long. The layman tithed $1,000 the year that he earned $10,000. He tithed $10,000 the year he earned $100,000. He tithed $100,000 the year that he earned a million. But the year that he earned $6 million, he just could not bring himself to write out a check for $600,000 to the church. So he called the pastor and asked if he could come see him. And he walked in and said to the pastor, you've got to help me. This tithing thing is getting out of control. I, I, can, can you release me from the promise that we made those years ago? It was fine when, it was, when, my, when my tithe was $1,000, but it's, just, it's gotten to where I can't afford it. And so the pastor knelt down on the floor and began to pray silently for quite a while. And eventually the man said, what are you doing? Are you praying that God would let me out of my promise to tithe? And the pastor said, no, I'm praying that God would reduce your income back to $10,000.
So it, it does prompt within us the question that we have to ask ourselves. And, and, and again, this is, not, this is not something that I, that, uh, that I came up with or, or anything. This is, this is Jesus' teaching, saying we cannot serve two masters in our life. When we think about this idea of giving, it's, it's an expectation because God